Right after I graduated from law school, I was living in a townhouse in West Virginia that I had just moved into as I was starting my first job at a law firm. And one night, the third or fourth night that I was there, I accidentally left the door open as I went in and went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, as I was sleeping, two men entered. I woke up and scared them off, but one of them grabbed my college signet ring that I had left on the banister of the stairs in the foyer. If you have ever had the experience of someone entering your house like that, it's pretty unsettling. It takes a few days before you sleep soundly through the night again. And it reminded me of a debate we had in law school. Our class in criminal law was learning that traditionally, under the common law, burglary was defined as breaking into someone's house in the night. This was considered more serious than mere breaking and entering, which was entering during the daylight hours. And this seemed to split the class into two groups. One group disliked the distinction that the law drew between burglary and mere breaking and entering. To them, it seemed arbitrary and archaic that the criminal penalty should be more severe depending on which time of day you broke into somebody's house. They wanted a legal system that was more compact and level and simple without all of these subtle distinctions and nuances. The other group saw something noble and majestic in the law making this kind of distinction. That breaking into a home at any time is wrong, of course, but there's something particularly heinous about breaking in at night, when people would be sleeping, when they should be enjoying their peace. And this group liked the distinction because it reflected some kind of the genuine human sentiments that we all feel about the sanctity of the nighttime hours. But the first group had all kinds of nitpicky objections to this. Well, some people work at night and sleep during the day. What about them? Or why should it be that if you break into a house during the day when there are three old ladies there and you scare them, you get charged with a lesser crime than breaking into an empty house in the middle of the night? They wanted a simpler, more rationalistic approach that would supposedly treat each situation according to its merits. Some even argued that it was wrong per se to automatically classify breaking and entering into a home as more serious than breaking into an office building or a barn or a school. Rather, let the particular circumstances decide instead of a general rule. So when you boiled it down, what these objectors were essentially troubled by was that by introducing these gradations into the law, somehow the law itself was corrupted. Edmund Burke, the great English philosopher and probably a closet Catholic, reacted to a similar mindset in the French revolutionaries. They wanted to sweep away all the laws and political structures of France, with all their medieval nuance and intricacy based upon Christian order and hierarchy, in order to create a new regime of liberty, equality, and fraternity. And Burke critiqued this. Permit me a long quote. He said, On this scheme of things, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. All homage paid to sex in general is to be regarded as romance and folly. Regicide, patricide, and sacrilege are but fictions of superstition, corrupting jurisprudence by destroying its simplicity. The murder of a king, or a queen, or a bishop, or a father, 
are only common homicide, and if the people are by any chance or in any way gainers by it, a sort of homicide most pardonable, and to which, into which we ought not make too severe a scrutiny. On the scheme of this barbarous philosophy, which is the offspring of cold hearts and muddy understandings, and which is as void of solid wisdom as it is destitute of all taste and elegance, laws are to be supported only by their own terrors and by the concern which each individual may find in them. Nothing is left which engages the affections of the people. We should keep this insight of Edmund Burke in mind as we look at the words of Christ in today's gospel. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. We misunderstand Jesus if we take him to mean that we can replace all of our understanding of the moral law with this one principle. Christ isn't saying that the phrase, love God and love your neighbor, is the only thing that one needs to understand in order to live a holy and upright life. No, instead, Christ is teaching about love is meant to show us the lens through which we understand the other, more particular commandments of the moral law, that they are to be embodiments of charity. And we see this in the first reading. The idea that the law draws distinctions for which we can provide rationales, but not necessarily exhaustive justification that will satisfy the nitpickers. For example, God speaks harshly about those who would oppress an alien, or do wrong to a widow or an orphan, or take advantage of the poor or those who are in debt. And God says, if you ever wrong them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Traditionally, this passage from Exodus is collected with four others from different parts of the Bible, where God says that certain sins cry out to him for vengeance. And the other four are the killing of Abel, in other words, the killing of the innocent, and the sin of the sodomites, sinning against the integrity of the family and the sexual nature of the person. That's not necessarily a condemnation of individual people who may struggle with various sexual sins, but it is a condemnation of a society in which sexual sin is condoned and promoted. And the cry of the oppressed people in Egypt, the sin of a government or a political power oppressing a people, an injustice to the wage earner, sins against those who, who expend themselves in labor. Of course, just like in my law school discussion about burglary, some people will object. Why are these five the only sins that cry out to heaven? Aren't all sins bad? Are, the, are these ones always and everywhere the worst? Is God picking and choosing some things arbitrarily to condemn? Again, we can give rational arguments in favor of why God would speak of these sins as especially bad. But we would have to recognize that these, sin, these reasons are not going to apply in all cases everywhere. Take the example of injustice to the wage earner, which God mentions both in Deuteronomy and in the book of James. God speaks specifically about the sin of withholding the wages or otherwise mistreating somebody who works for you. Now, of course, we should always strive to be fair and honest in all of our business and financial dealings honoring all of our obligations and contracts. 
But God is saying that if you employ somebody personally, whether that be in your business or in your household, you need to be absolutely, scrupulously bend over backwards fair to them. Treat them well. Pay them what they are worth, not just what they are willing to accept, perhaps because they need the job or they're too timid to bargain for a better wage. Never take advantage of them in any way. God is saying that the relationship of an employer and an employee is different from a mere contract, like one that one business might have with another. Instead, it is a covenant, something to be lived out in absolute and strict good faith. Now, again, some will quibble with this. Well, isn't it also wrong to not pay your visa bill on time or to drive a hard bargain with the realtor when you buy a house? Couldn't doing that in some particular case result in something worse than mistreating your employee? Shouldn't we judge each specific case by the harm that it causes? And I think at root, their fear is that somehow if we say that this or that sin cries out to heaven, that means that the other sins are really not such a big deal. That if we say that it is especially bad to defraud a worker of his wages, that this somehow implies that defrauding a person or failing to pay somebody in some other context is really no big deal. In essence, it's kind of like the charges that Protestants often bring against the Catholic Church. They'll say, for example, that if the church says that the sanctuary in the church is a holy place, are we saying that somehow other places are unholy? Or that if we say that God's grace is especially operative in the sacraments, are we saying that God's grace is not found in other situations? And it is this kind of zero-sum, either-or analysis, where one thing is always seen at the expense of the other that gets us ultimately nowhere. Failing to recognize the grades and distinctions in the moral life doesn't make us see the value of everything equally. Instead, it deadens us to the value of anything. Saying that no sins should be held up as especially those that cry out to heaven for vengeance doesn't make us more sensitive to the evil of all sin. Rather, it shrinks our moral capacity to confront sin at all. Recognizing the sins that cries out to heaven helps to leaven our moral capacity. When we see that, for example, breaking into someone's house at night is an especially egregious violation of the peace, we learn to have greater respect for the sanctity of other people's property and homes in all cases. When we know that, especially, we need to treat those who give their time and effort to us in direct labor with the utmost fairness we learn to have greater respect and honesty in all of our financial dealings. Or when we see that God calls down his vengeance, especially on those who would abuse widows or orphans or foreigners, we understand how we are measured by how we treat the least among us. Embracing the particular does not prevent us from embracing the whole. But attempting to simply treat everything on the same level deadens us to the moral the moral seriousness of certain situations. And when we are armed with this understanding, we can truly live out the teachings of Jesus to love God above all else and to treat our neighbor as ourselves, not as slaves to the law, but as true sons and daughters of the Father. 
you know, an interesting postscript to my story about getting my college ring stolen. Like I said, that was when I had just graduated from law school and I was starting my first, you know, serious career type of job. And that was 13 years ago or 14 years ago now. And in the spring of 2013, just before I was ordained a deacon, which is where a seminarian makes their permanent commitment to celibacy and obedience to the church, I got a call from the vocations office. And they told me that there was a young man who contacted them from West Virginia who was doing yard work at his grandparents' house, which, by the way, was nowhere near the townhouse where I lived, and he found a ring in some dirt. And he cleaned it off, and he saw that it had a name engraved on the inside of the shank, and he used that to track me down to the Diocese of Arlington. And so now, 13 years later, I got my ring back. And I thought it was interesting that it was stolen just as I was starting what I thought would be my lifelong career as a lawyer, and then it was gone, and then it was returned to me just before I made my permanent commitment to being a cleric. So make of that what you will.